0: Let's take our Bibles in hand and turn to the very last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one, verse one. We're about to embark on a two month series on Christ's message to the seven churches. Revelation chapter one is our text today. Now, when we think about starting in the book of Revelation, people generally have two reactions. The first reaction is a little bit of shock and awe because uh, they have been conditioned to believe that the book of Revelation is not understandable. And it's something to be avoided, to be talked about in secret whispers, but never really to be read. And that's unfortunate because all the Bible is God's word. And we believe here in a theological concept known as perspicuity, which means that the Bible is understandable. Now, if we're to be honest, we have to say that there are certain portions of the Bible that are more difficult for us to understand than others. We just completed a study of the book of Daniel, and I have to say, especially those last three chapters were very challenging, weren't they? But just because something is challenging doesn't mean we shouldn't undertake it. I've told you before, I have a friend who's a pastor and he tells his congregation often, there are certain theological headaches that are worth having. And a study of the book of Revelation may give you a theological headache, but it's worth having because it's God's word and it's incredibly encouraging. The word revelation, lowercase r, the concept of revelation, you probably know means to reveal, that's the root of that word. That is to make something that was previously hidden, visible. Uh, The Greek word is apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalyptical. And we think of something apocalyptical as terrible. That's not the case. It just means something that was veiled, that is now unveiled. And the very first line of verse one says, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. We say, well, Christ doesn't need to be unveiled. After all, he came as a baby, he was announced by angels. He lived for over 30 years of perfect life. He died on the cross and he rose again. And there were many hundreds of people who witnessed that. Well, that's true, but it's unveiling Christ as he really is. You see, when Jesus took on human flesh, we call that his humiliation. That is, he condescended according to Philippians chapter two to leave the glories of heaven where he was worshiped all the time by angels and he took on human flesh and all the indignities that accompanied being a human. And only rarely did we get a glimpse in the gospels of his glory. On one occasion, he took his inner circle of disciples up on a mountain and let them see his glory. We call that the Mount of Transfiguration. When he walked on water and he healed people and he raised the dead, we saw a brief glimpse of who he really is and his glory. But here in the book of Revelation, he is revealed as he will be forever. And that is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, as we talk about the concept of revelation, God has revealed himself to us, hasn't he? It's not as though we went out searching and we found him. If God had not in his sovereignty chosen to reveal himself to us, we'd still be in the dark. We'd be groping around in darkness. The Bible indicates that he's revealed himself to us in two broad categories. The first category we call natural revelation, the root word is nature, that is through what has been created according to the book of Romans. We can look at the stars, Uh, we can see trees, children, and know that someone did that, we didn't. His divine power and attributes are on display. But there's a special form of revelation which includes God's plan of redemption that he reserves for the Bible. And that's the kind of revelation we're talking about here. God is revealing not only who he is, but what his plan is for humanity, but specifically for the church, especially here in these first three chapters. Now the nature of God's revelation to man is that it is progressive, meaning that as history has unfolded, God gives us more light. He makes it clearer and fixes it more strongly to our understanding. I've been using this illustration of a screw as we studied this summer in the book of Daniel. That is, Daniel kept covering the same future prophecy over and over from different perspectives in different ways. And just as a screw spins on an axis in one fixed point, but with every rotation, it grows stronger and deeper and more clear. And this is what happens in the book of Revelation. This is the clearest revelation of not only who God is and who Christ is, but what the future holds. And so, um, think of it in those terms. For example, back in the 500s BC, when Daniel lived, we got just a little peek into the future through a series of visions. John gives us a much clearer picture, but even different portions of scripture emphasize different aspects of God's character. Again, the gospels emphasize Christ's humanity the fact that he's the suffering servant, that he came to die. But the book of Revelation reveals Jesus in glorification. That is how he's to be worshiped for all eternity by the church. So what is the purpose of apocalyptical literature such as Revelation? Does God do it to scare us? Uh, A lot of people think that Revelation is is too scary for, for children. No, just the opposite. In fact, God gives us apocalyptical literature to encourage us He shows us difficult days that are in the future. And people are going through difficult days today, aren't they? But cheer up, as I often say, it's going to get a lot worse. And that's what the book of Revelation says. It's going to get lots worse than even it was in the day of John. But fear not, church, in the end, God wins. That was the bold summary line when we finished the book of Daniel. And John has the same bold summary line. So I hope you're interested Let's begin reading verse 1, chapter 1, the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea." Let's stop right there. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, what we're going to do and attempt to do over the next couple of months of Sundays is Prepare a feast every Sunday to just enjoy what the Lord has to say about the church and about his future. But today we're just going to set the table, okay? Get ready for the feast that is to come. And so it's important for you to understand the background of this book, or it won't make a lot of sense to you. So we'll start with the outline there, the author, who who wrote it? verses one through three explain that. So let's look at verse one. He says, this is a revelation and unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. That is the God, the father gave to God, the son to show to his bond servants. So a bond servant, the Greek word there, doulos means slave. And John describes himself as the author, as a slave of Jesus. And he describes all of us as slaves of Jesus. Now we tend to think of that as a bad thing, but believe me, that's a good thing. This is a word we get from an Old Testament concept that when a slave loved his master, even when he had the ability to be a freedman, he would go and say, I don't want to leave you because I love you. That's this word. We are those who the Lord has redeemed and purchased by his own blood. He sent and communicated this message by his angel to his bondservant, John. And so the author is John. Well, that tells us almost nothing because John is perhaps the most common name in the world. I have a brother named John and a brother-in-law named John, about 10 cousins named John and about 50 friends named John. And so when I say I'm going to call John, I have to be very specific. And so John in the Bible, also a common name, but uh, there was one that Jesus loved called the apostle John and church history tells us that that's exactly who wrote this. This was revelation given to the apostle that Jesus loved, John. Now John had the distinction of being the last of the original 12. He was the only one, so far as we can tell in history, who did not suffer a violent martyr's death. And so this would have taken place uh, at about 95 AD when he was an elderly man, and John identifies himself as the author. But the truth is, Jesus is the author. John just wrote down what he was told to write down. In fact, I've been reading a book the last few weeks. It's a a very old book about these first three chapters of Revelation, and the the title of the book is The Postman of Patmos, where the author views John as simply the postman. Jesus gives him seven letters and says, go deliver these letters, and John wrote down what he was told, and, and he did that. So the emphasis is not on John, as great a man as he was. As I always tell you, the hero of the Bible is Jesus, isn't it, and not John. But this is John, the son of Zebedee. One half of that duo, Jesus dubbed the sons of thunder. Their mother came to Jesus and tried to convince him to let one of them sit on his left and one on his right when he came in his kingdom. But the Lord, of course, loved John and used John in a a great way. So he's the author. Now, secondly, we see the recipients. Look in verse four, but before we do, Verse 3, something to take note of. I have it highlighted in my Bible, remind myself of it all. This is a promise of a blessing to those who would work hard to understand what we're studying over the next two months. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it, for the time is near. I think that's true not only of this portion of Scripture, but every sermon you hear and every time you sit down to study the Bible. First of all, You have to read it, don't you? But not just read it, read it for comprehension. And that's what it means to hear it, to let it sink deep into your thoughts, into its part of your life. But the most important part of God's word is not reading it or even understanding its meaning. What is the most important part of reading and hearing God's word? It's obeying it, isn't it? Blessed is he who hears it, reads it, and ultimately obeys it. And so that's our marching orders as we start out on this study of the book of Revelation. So the recipients are found in verses four through eight. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, what are the seven churches in Asia? Well, we have to go down to verse 11, and he lists them for us. They are the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now the church had not grown to where it is today, where we have 50 churches in one small area. Typically there was one church in either a city or even a region. And this is the case here. And this is a large region, what he calls Asia. Now when we think of Asia, I do, I think of the Far East. I think of China and Japan, Vietnam, and those kinds of things. That's Far East Asia. In their day, they thought of Asia as anything east of Greece. And specifically this region we would call today Anatolia or the modern day country of Turkey. And so it's that peninsula that is modern day Turkey and the islands there in the Aegean Sea are where we find these seven churches. And by the way, these are literally churches. These are literal places. Now over the centuries, uh, there are those who've tried to allegorize the first three chapters of Revelation and say, these weren't actual churches. These are simply um symbols of epics of history. And so they would view one of the churches as maybe representing the Middle Ages and another representing times before that and another times after that. I, I think that's a overcomplication of, of that which is simple. These were literal churches, and John was told to send literal messages to each of these churches. Now as we get into the study of each of the letters, there are those churches who receive commendation from the Lord. Keep doing what you're doing. There are those that receive rebuke from the Lord, stop what you're doing. But most of them get a mixture of commendation and rebuke. That tells me these were real people. Because I don't know too many people who get it right all the time. And I don't know too many people who never get it right. Most of us are somewhere in between, aren't we? And these are real people. And yet we can learn so much from these seven letters because they go through things, tribulations and persecutions that every epic of history of the church goes through. It is going through today, and also there are areas of improvement that every church needs to look at, and even places of repentance that are called for. And so he goes on in verse 5. He says, this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to our God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that there's no mistake of the author of this letter. He gives us illustration after description of Jesus. He's a faithful witness. That is, you can trust his word. He's the firstborn of the dead. That is, he was resurrected from the grave. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Only that can be said of Jesus. He loves us and he released us. That's the word redemption. Remember I told you a slave could be purchased and bought back by his master This doulos, he says, that's what's happened to us. He's purchased us out of the slave market of sin and redeemed us by his blood. And he's made us a kingdom. That is, he's made of all the tribes and nations of the world a new kingdom, and he is the king over it, and to him be all the glory. And then John just can't help himself. He has to describe what's coming. He says, behold, he's coming with the clouds. That is the overarching message of, to the church in all ages is that Jesus is coming again soon. And by the way, this is a direct quotation of Daniel chapter seven. You're going to find many references in the book of Revelation to the book of Daniel. That's exactly how the angels describe the coming Messiah. He's coming in the clouds. I am the Alpha and the Omega verse eight says the Lord who is, and who was, and who is to come the almighty. So you would have to be really thick not to understand this message is from Jesus. All right. So the author, Jesus, through John to the seven churches and ultimately to all Christians, the bondservants of Christ. And so now let's look at the setting. Verse nine shows us. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. So as I said, historians Say this was written between 94 and 96 AD, but it was written on this island of Patmos. Now, where is that? Well, it's this little rocky island off of the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. And we know that John was banished there by the Roman authorities because they wanted to separate him from his work with the church in Ephesus because that's where he last served. And they thought they could sort of stifle his influence by putting him on this uh, little island. But of course, that was not the case. And, And if you want to know why he was there, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Not because of some crime he committed, it's because he was a clear voice for the gospel. This is none other than religious persecution. We say, well, how serious was it? Well, it was pretty serious. Look over across your page to chapter two, In verse 13, in his letter to the church at Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus declared the city of Pergamum as the capital city of Satan on earth. That's that's pretty clear. And, And he says, and you hold fast my name and don't deny the faith. Here they are in the capital city of Satan on earth, and yet this little bastion of Christianity is holding tight to the gospel and they were being persecuted. He says, even in the days of Antimus, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. So how serious was the persecution? People were dying. The emperor was a man by the name of Domitian and he was just beginning to persecute the church. And as I said, it would get lots worse. So that is the setting. And so he says, giving us a little more detail. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? Well, some of your charismatic friends may have a different answer than than I do. They would say being in the Spirit is getting so emotional that you speak in an unknown tongue, or you run around circles in the building, or roll around the floor, or bark like a dog, and they say, I'm in the Spirit. Well, that's not what it means to be in the Spirit. Remember when we were studying the book of Daniel, I gave the illustration of the prophet Elisha. Remember, there was a king of Aram who wanted to do away with Elisha. And so he sent his soldiers with chariots and horses to circle the little village of Dothan where Elisha lived. And Elisha's servant went out one morning early and here are these soldiers circling the village. They're after his master Elisha. And he comes in, he's afraid, and he says, Master, what are we going to do? And Elisha prayed that God would open his servant's eyes so that he would understand that those are with him, were greater than those who were with the king of Aram. And then they looked out, and what did they see on the mountainside? The host of the Lord, the angelic army. They'd been there all the time, but this servant didn't have the spiritual eyes to see it. Here is John in the spirit. He has been transported supernaturally into the spiritual realm where he can see what's going on all the time that heretofore he hadn't been able to see. And so he's in the spirit, and then he even tells us what day of the week it was. He says, on the Lord's day. Now, what is the Lord's day from our perspective? It's Sunday, isn't it? You know, that Jewish people worshipped on Saturday, their Sabbath. But Sunday, something very important happened that changed the calendar. That was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We talk about Easter Sunday. We celebrate once a year. But really, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, for 2,000 years, from the earliest days of the church, Christians had been meeting on the Lord's day. And so here's John. He's in the spirit. It's on the Lord's day. And he hears behind him a trumpet voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book. Now, here is the command. That's our fourth point. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now the nature of these letters, and they were, in fact, when he says here in the English translation, write it in a book, but that really says in the Greek, write it in scrolls. And so they would take papyrus and they would write it down. They would roll it up and seal it with wax, and then it would be delivered. And in the cases of these epistles, which means letters, they would be read publicly to the whole church at one time. And that seems to be what he's calling him to do, to write down what he sees and then to roll it up in a scroll and distribute it to the seven churches. And so you see why the author of that book called John the Postman of Patmos. And again, there is a blessing attendant upon just the reading of it. Verse three says, blessed is he who reads these words, but also hears them and also ultimately obeys them. Heeds them. Now that brings us to really the crux of the matter in chapter one, and that is the vision. Remember in the book of Daniel, and I tell you there's lots of similarities between Revelation and Daniel. God revealed the future to Daniel through a series of visions. Some of the visions other people received, and Daniel interpreted them, such as Nebuchadnezzar. And in certain circumstances, Daniel received these visions directly. Remember, one of the first visions that we study in the book of Daniel was. The vision of the statue was this giant statue. It had a head made out of gold, his arms and shoulders made out of silver, his chest and midsection out of bronze, his legs of iron, and his feet, a mixture of clay and iron. And Daniel was given the interpretation that the head of gold represented the empire Babylon, the arms of silver, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then an unknown yet future kingdom were the feet. And then remember that he saw this great rock that had been carved out of a mountain, untouched by human hands, and it comes and it smashes these empires to pieces. And that is the kingdom of the Lord's Christ. That is Christ coming in His glory. Now, the screw turns another rotation here, and we get a clearer picture of what was meant through that vision, through a second vision, this time given to John. And it's a vision of golden lampstands. Look at verse 12. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Now, we don't know much in our culture about lampstands. You might have ones decoration in your house. I don't know. But in the time of John, they were not decorations so much as they were necessities, utilities, we would say. And so we come in early on Sunday morning, we turn on light switches and instantly we have electricity we have lights and we have heating and, and cooling as needed. In those days, they had to be much more intentional. And so Jesus told a parable about 10 virgins. Five of them made preparations and bought oil for their lamps and five didn't. Well, the, the lamps in those days were fueled by oil. And so when it got to be towards evening, the sun going down, they would light these oil lamps and they could carry them around from room to room. But if they wanted to just illuminate an entire large room, they would put them all together on a lampstand. And that's what John saw, a lampstand. And there were seven lamps on it and around that lampstand. And in it was, he said, one like a son of man. Do you remember that phrase, son of man? We were introduced to it in the book of Daniel. It's the first time and only time in the Old Testament that that phrase is used and it is synonymous with Messiah. We know that because when Jesus came on the scene, this was the phrase that he used more than any other to describe himself. And he's identifying with us. Yes, he is the son of God, of course that's true, but he's also the son of man, that he's literally a man and took on human flesh. He's altogether God and altogether man. And so he looks and he kind of looks like a human being, but kind of not. So let's read on. He says he's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And any Jewish person that John was writing to would immediately recognize that is the garb of priests. They wore robes and sashes. And what is the role of a priest? He's to intercede through the sacrificial system for the sins of the people. And that's what Jesus did. The Bible indicates that Jesus fulfilled three offices prophet, priest, and king. So when Jesus came proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he was fulfilling his role of prophet. When he died on the cross as the once for all sacrifice, he was fulfilling his role as priest. He not only was the priest, he was the sacrifice and is today, the Bible said, ever seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. But there's coming a day, dear friends, and that's really what the book of Revelation is all about where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and we will recognize who he really is, King of kings. And that's what he's saying to John, and John recognizes this is who is writing to him. Verse 14 describes his body. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Daniel saw an almost identical vision in his day. This shows his purity. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. This is no human, friends. This is the risen Lord Jesus. His head and his hair like wool, his eyes like flame, his body like burnished bronze. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, a sword is a sword of retribution, of judgment. We're going to see a little later on in the book when Jesus comes riding that white war horse, this two-edged sword coming from his mouth. It's the sword of judgment. See, when Jesus came the first time, you remember when he came into Jerusalem the week of his death, he was riding the foal of a donkey, the universal symbol of, uh, symbol of peace and humility and meekness. But when Jesus comes again, friends, he's not going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be the judge of all mankind. And he's coming riding on a war horse, and he's coming to judge. And this is what John sees. This is what has been hidden in the past that is now being revealed. Verse 17, this is John's reaction to the vision. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Does that sound familiar? Seems like every time some human being gets a little glimpse of God's glory, that's the the response. Moses, when he hid in the cleft of the rock, was overwhelmed by the glory of God as he passed by. Isaiah, you studied about in Sunday school today, didn't you? Remember when he went in and he had that vision of the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne in the temple? He didn't say, here I am, Lord, what's up? Went down on his face and said, woe is me, for I... I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Couldn't lift his head. He was in the presence of God. We saw it with Daniel. Daniel said, I I lost my strength. My face went white like I was dead. I was in despair until the angel touched him and said, it's going to be all right, Daniel. Well, we have a similar thing happen to John. He fell down like a dead man. His strength left him. And then what happens? And he placed his right hand on me. Isn't the Lord Jesus kind? Isn't he gentle? Remember he loved John, had a very special relationship with him. And he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. That is, I know you, John. He says, I'm the living one. Now note the, the ending there, he didn't say, I used to be living. He said, I am the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. Now, only Jesus could say that sentence truthfully. Now, there are a few people in the Bible who literally died and came back to life. I'm thinking of uh, Lazarus, Jesus' friend there at Bethany. Been dead three days when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. I'm thinking of the widow of Zarephath's son in the Old Testament. I'm thinking of the widow of Nain's son in the New Testament. There are a handful of people who literally died that God brought back from the dead. But do you know what all those people I just mentioned have in common? They died again. Only of Jesus could he say. Now listen to the way he said it. He said, I am the living one. That is, I'm alive right now. I was dead, literally. And behold, I am alive how long? Forever. Only can that be said of Jesus But here's the most important part. Not only did Jesus come back from the dead, he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades, which are the same things. He's just saying, I'm the one who controls, who lives, who dies, and when. Why is that important? Because he is writing these seven letters to churches that are right on the cusp of persecution. And many of them are gonna go to jail. And many of them are gonna die. And it's already started according to chapter two, and what Jesus wants them to know through John's pen is, even if you die for my sake, it's okay because I've got the keys of death. Even if you die, you'll, you'll, you'll rise again. You know what that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Why did Abraham have such faith that he could take his promised son up on the mountain and offer him to the Lord on the altar? Because Hebrews tells us he believed that he who took his life could raise him again. And, friend, that's why <laughs> you don't have to fear death, Christian. You don't have to fear going to the mission field. You don't have to fear dying. Because even if you die into the, in the service of the Lord, he is the one who lives forever and has the keys of death and hell. And because he's established that firmly in our hearts, Now he's going to graciously give us the interpretation of the vision. Verse 19, therefore, as a result of my power and authority, he says to John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Now, if you want a simple outline of the entire book of Revelation, there it is. He writes down the things that he sees. So John sees a series of visions. He writes them down. He writes the things that are, that is in the present, from John's perspective, he writes to the seven literal churches. And then the rest of the book are the things which are to come, that is prophecy. So we're only going to study for the next nine weeks, the first two, the things that John sees in the vision and the things that are, the seven churches and the seven letters. Chapters four through the end of the book of Revelation are the things which are to come. And Lord willing, if we live long enough, we'll study those too one day. But our purview for right now are the first three chapters. Now let's look at this, this vision one more time. You have the lamp stand, and I take that to be the church writ large. Every Christian from every epoch of time. Then you have the seven lamps, which are the seven literal churches of Asia. And we can see all churches and their characteristics within those seven. You have the oil of the spirit, I take it, which fuels the church. And our job is to be light, isn't it? Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is the actual light. We reflect that light. Remember in his gospel, the same John who wrote the gospel of John says, light came into the world, meaning Christ, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. John the Baptist says, I'm not the light. I just came to point out the light. But Jesus tells us, because he has now ascended to be with the Father, we are the light, aren't we? We're to take that gospel message to a lost and dying world and have influence in this wicked world. And he says here that the mystery of the seven stars, verse 20, which you saw in my right hand, The seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, the Bible uses that word angel quite a bit. The Greek word angelos simply means messenger. And in some cases, like in the book of Daniel, we see these celestial beings, Michael and Gabriel by name, bringing messages. But in many other cases, it doesn't have to be a celestial being. It can be a human being. And I think that's what we have here. Uh, One of the staff members in our prayer time said, do you think that word angel in verse 20 means pastor? And I said, well, I've known a lot of pastors and I wouldn't describe many of them as angels. But that's exactly what it means. He's saying, I'm giving this letter to be read to the churches by their messenger pastors. And so the postman of Patmos, John, writes this letter and he writes to the church at Ephesus, attention, pastor. Pastor. And he does that seven times, as we'll read over the next couple of months. Now, that number seven, I think, is significant. We see it several times, don't we? In fact, we saw it back earlier in verse four, where he says of Jesus, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, we don't believe in many gods. We do believe in a trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that number seven just means everything that it means to be God, all of his attributes, And so we have seven churches, so I think representative of all churches everywhere, we have seven lamps, seven lampstands, seven stars. All of it points to the fact that this is a complete revelation. Nothing is lacking. I think that's very important because we believe and teach here that when the book of Revelation was complete, the canon of Scripture was closed. That God has given us in these books everything he wants us to know about himself and everything we need to know about him. Why is that important? Because if someone says, I've got another revelation that needs to be added to the Bible, don't you believe them? You say, well, pastor, no one would ever do that. Oh, oh, no. Ask our friends out in Utah who are planting churches because in the 1800s, in upstate New York, there was a young man by the name of Joseph Smith who claimed he was out walking in the woods today and he stumbled upon some golden tablets written in a celestial language, and he alone could interpret them. And they have today the Mormon Bible, which they say is another testament of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no other testament of Jesus Christ. We have everything he wants us to know about him right here. And so for the next two months, we're going to study Christ's message to the seven church. I hope you'll be here and bring a friend. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't leave us to grope alone in the dark searching for you. You have revealed yourself generally in nature. We can see your creative power on display through our senses. And yet, Lord, that's not enough to save us. We need to know about your plan of salvation. And we find that in the Bible. thank you for your special revelation and those you and your sovereignty chose to communicate it. Men like John, who wrote the Gospel of John, which is really a gospel track, and then the book of Revelation, in which you so show Jesus in his glory. And Father, we long to see him with our own eyes. And according to the book of Revelation, for those who persevere to the end, one day we will. But until then, Lord, this is a difficult place to live and it's getting harder all the time. John knew that. So inspired by the Spirit, instructed by Jesus, he wrote words of encouragement to the seven churches. Not only words of encouragement, but words of rebuke where that's needed. Words of warning to some of them, Lord. And so we pray we not only read these verses over the next two months, but that we would hear them, really hear them, understand their meaning. But most importantly, Lord, we pray that we'd obey what we know to be the truth. Help us, Father, not to be hearers only, but doers of your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.